Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. On July 13, 1870, a Roman Catholic ecumenical council known as Vatican I took a preliminary vote on papal infallibility. Now, 451 of the bishops there approved, 62 voted yes but wanted some amendments, and 88 were against papal infallibility. Now, at this point, everybody knew that this would pass, and so some of the delegates that were against papal infallibility just left. They, they left Rome. Now, the final decision came five days later, the final vote, if you will, and 533 of the representatives there approved, and two were against. And a, a document that came from this decision, from the Vatican I Council, was the Pastor Iternus document, and I've been referring to that a lot in previous episodes. And so it lays out some of these uh, doctrines about the Pope, and the fourth part, the fourth chapter, is about papal infallibility. Now, uh, I just want to remind you, and I've, I've mentioned these phrases in the last several episodes, but in this Pastor Iternus document, it says that all of these teachings about the Pope are, quote, the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, and this is the clear doctrine of Holy Scripture as it has ever been understood by the Catholic Church. So that is the claims of this Pastor Iternus document, that this is how it's always been. It is the ancient and constant faith of the universal church. Those phrases are so important to keep in mind because what Rome, what Roman Catholicism is claiming and what we see in history simply do not add up. Now, also, I just want to want you to think about this for a second. If papal infallibility is true, then why was there a vote? Now, there there may be I, I could I very likely could be missing something here because I've never heard this argument mentioned in any debate or anything. But why was there a vote? If if it's the ancient and constant faith of the universal church that the pope has has primacy of jurisdiction that whatever the pope says he doesn't need approval from anybody that that is infallible. Then why it, why do we even need to vote on this? How did the bishops? Here's another question: How did the bishops in the Roman Catholic Church that were delegates to this council to Vatican I? How did they not understand such a long-standing truth? I mean, they're a bishop in the church, shouldn't they? know these clear doctrines of Holy Scripture as it has ever been understood by the church, why in the world would they vote against such a uh, such a teaching? Truth, and so truth does not rely on a vote to make it true. Truth is truth. Did Jesus ever take a vote on the things that he taught? And then isn't the Pope supposed to be the vicar of Christ? That is the earthly representative of Christ to the church? So if papal infallibility is true, why did we need a vote at all? Now, also, why were there 19 ecumenical councils before this b- before Vatican I? Why all the debates? Why don't we just ask the Pope? The Pope is the one who's supposed to know. He's he, The reason we have the Pope, supposedly, is so that there's not this conf- confusion 
in Christianity. The Pope can can clarify all these issues for us. So why all these early church councils where everybody met and deliberated and all this stuff, it, why not just ask the Pope? I mean, it's, it's like letting your kids debate about where to go on a family vacation, but the parents know that they've already made reservations. They already know. It, the Pope supposedly already knows all the right decisions. He cannot teach error. So why not just ask him instead of having all these ecumenical councils? So you're just patronizing all these bishops. They come and they debate, and but ultimately their decision does not matter. The Pope has supreme authority. He can speak by himself. He doesn't need the approval of any council, and, and it must be so. Also, he can agree with the council or he can disagree with the council. It does not matter. It all depends on the Pope. So the uh, essentially the, the councils do not matter because they all have to go through the Pope. Now, the truth is, the Roman Catholic Church did not act as if the Pope was infallible for centuries. But just like many things in Roman Catholicism, after a decision at Vatican I in 1870, we've now got to look at history through the Roman Catholic Church historical filter, and that way everything will, will fit into their system. And so that's, that's what I'm doing today, is I'm going to show you an event in history in the Roman Catholic Church and how it contradicts this, this teaching, this, this thought about papal infallibility. Now, less than two months after the start of Vatican I, so the conclusion was in July of 1870, but it started in 1869. And so in December of 1869, the the discussion at this council about papal infallibility was a big deal. And so a member of the Roman Catholic Church is worried about this papal infallibility dogma being passed at the at Vatican I. And so he writes to his bishop, and, and here's a quote from the letter. Quote, I look with anxiety at the prospect of having to defend decisions which may not be difficult to my private judgment, but may be most difficult to defend logically in the face of historical facts. He's saying, I know church history, and if we pass papal infallibility, it is going to be really difficult to defend. Another quote later down in the letter, he says, but all I do is to pray those great early doctors of the church whose intercession would decide the matter, Augustine and the rest, to avert so great a calamity. So he's like praying to the saints to somehow prevent this from happening. And nevertheless, he concludes his letter to his bishop with this, If it is God's will, I shall feel I have but to bow my head to his adorable, inscrutable providence. So I got to I gotta admire the man. He's so committed to the Roman Catholic Church that even though he says, logically, this is going to be extremely difficult to defend given church history, if this council votes on papal infallibility, I will just have to bow my head and consider that it's God's will. That's right. He thinks it's God's will to contradict history. God is consistent. He, he, nothing in history contradicts what God does. He, he's not contradictory. Now, who wrote this letter? It is John Henry Cardinal Newman. He's the same guy I mentioned a few episodes ago who came up with this idea of the development of doctrines within the Roman Catholic Church. He's the one that has the idea that doc doctrines are like an acorn that develops over time into an oak tree. Well, some of those, the way that 
the Roman Catholic Church lists out some of the dogmas, then that you could you could apply that, and I can see a workaround on how that how that idea would work, but not with papal infallibility. Remember the Pastor Iternus quotes I gave you. It is the ancient and constant faith of the universal church. This is the clear doctrines of Holy Scripture as they have ever been understood by the church. So that th- it breaks down when you just look at the Roman Catholic official church documents. Now, here's the quote from Pastor Iternus. And by the way, there, there will be a lot of quotes today because I, I just I have to lay them out there for you so that I, if, if I just say it without proving where it comes from, then if someone's listening to this later on, they're like, oh, he's just, you know, he's just kind of interpreting it the way he wants to interpret it. I am I'm giving you the quotes. That way you can go look them up for yourself if you want to and, and read the rest of the context. But in Pastor Iternus, in the, the fourth section, the fourth chapter, that's where it lays out the papal infallibility stuff. And so here's a quote from that. We teach and define that it is divinely revealed dogma that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in discharge of the office of pastor and teacher of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church. By the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter, is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine Redeemer willed that his church should be endowed for defining doctrine regarding faith or morals, and that therefore such definitions of the Roman pontiff are irreformable of themselves and not from the consent of the church. But if anyone, God forbid, should presume to contradict this our definition, let him be anathema. Now, the first thing I want you to understand about papal infallibility, and and Protestants have this wrong all the time, is that the Roman Catholic Church is, is proclaiming that the Pope is infallible, but not impeccable. Now, there are some pretty wicked popes in the past. There there were some that, I mean, they just disgraced the office, and, and even Roman Catholics would admit that. Uh, lots of um, sexual perversions in the popery, um, you know, financial corruption, all kinds of stuff. And so there's, there's lots of popes that uh, acted in that way. There are also a lot of noble popes who, you know, who did a lot of really good stuff. So uh, the the pope, they're saying that the pope is infallible, but not impeccable. He's not going to like live without sin. Now, it, what is infallibility? Now, th- that it doesn't mean that he's infallible in everything that he says, like every word that comes out of his mouth. The requirements of infallibility are that the pope is speaking ex cathedra. Now, that is Latin, meaning from the chair, and so this is like an official papal teaching, and it has to be on faith and or morals, and it has to be a papal teaching to the universal church. Now, they get this, this phrase ex cathedra from the chair. Um, one of the ways that it's defended in Roman Catholicism is they refer to Matthew 23 and the chair, the cathedra of Moses or Moses' seat. And if you remember a few episodes back, I, I talked about Matthew 23, so go look at that if you, if you hadn't heard it already. Anyway, Robert Sengenis is a Roman Catholic apologist, and he's, he's debated James White on the issue of papal infallibility, and, and more from that coming up in a little bit. But uh, in, in the very opening statement of his debate, he sort of lays out the criteria for when the Pope is can be considered to be teaching infallibly. So he has these, these five criteria. One, the Pope must be speaking in his recognized role as teaching for all Christians. 
He precisely, and the Pope had, number two, the, the Pope has to precisely define a doctrine, not merely give a general teaching. Number three, the doctrine defined only concerns issues of faith or morality. Number four, the doctrine is commanded to be believed by the whole church. And number five, the doctrine is irreformable and not subject to denial from the church. So once the Pope, if he's speaking ex cathedra, once he lays out that doctrine, it cannot be changed. All the bishops in the world can get together for a council and all of them can disagree with the Pope, but it cannot be changed. That is the infallible you know, doctrine proclaimed by the Pope. So all five, in order to be considered infallible, Robertson Jenna says that all five of these conditions must be met. And so what this does is this, this extremely limits the when the Pope is actually teaching infallibly. And so there's only two uh, two times where the Pope has done this, and that is the Immaculate Conception dogma about Mary, and that was in 1854, and then the bodily assumption of Mary in 1950. So the Pope has infallibly defined these dogmas, and that's the only two times that papal infallibility in this precise way has been exercised. All the other times, all the other you know Catholic dogmas come from ecumenical councils. So the Pope, you know, may approve those councils, but it's not like he's just coming out and and speaking infallibly from from the chair. Now, it, it, so what this does by limiting uh, when the Pope is speaking infallibly, it it makes it a lot easier to ignore a lot of his a lot of errors by popes throughout history, and so they say they can always say, oh well. You know, he, yeah, the Pope said something wrong there, but he wasn't teaching ex cathedra. He, you know, so he's not infallible then. But keep in mind the 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 reason a lot of people a lot of the time the reason the people like the Roman Catholic Church is they say oh this is the universal church of two thousand years this is the church Jesus Christ gave us and there's unity because the Pope will kind of keep everybody in line and if we're confused about something we can just look to the church and and look to the Pope and he can he can help guide us but you know if he if he's not infallible. 99.99999% of the time, then what kind of guide is that? And so so here's some examples of when the Pope is not considered to be teaching infallibly. And so uh, papal encyclicals, these would be like pastoral letters to the bishops of the, the churches. And but But sometimes these are considered to be applicable to the universal church. So also that we are told by the Roman Catholic Church that these encyclicals should be considered truth, but not like analyzed every single word as truth. So when you have like like uh, Pastor Iternus, for example, that comes from an ecumenical council, and that is like every single word is truth. You can, according to Roman Catholicism, you could sort of like analyze that just like we believe every single word of the Bible is true. So with the strictest requirements, you can go to that, and that is supposedly absolute truth. But if it's a, a papal encyclical, if he's just writing a letter to bishops or that sort of thing, uh, in general, you can consider it to be true, but not as not as true in some way, not as specific. You can't dig down into the details like you can a uh, a document that is infallible, like like from an ecumenical council. Also, if the Pope is ever get it, giving an interview, that is not considered an infallible teaching. He the Pope can make an error there. If the Pope writes a book. He can make errors in that book in the in in what he teaches in that book. There may be errors in there. 
So you see how this quickly goes from, oh man, we, you know, this is awesome. We've got the Pope and he, he'll never lead us astray. And now it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He can a lot of the time because he's not infallible all the time. It's only when he's speaking in this very specific manner. Now, the Second Vatican Council declared this. They, they say, religious submission of will and of mind must be shown in a special way to the authentic teaching of the Roman pontiff. Again, Roman pontiff means pope. Now, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra, that is, it must be shown in such a way that his supreme magisterium is acknowledged with reverence. The judgments made by him are sincerely adhered to according to his manifest mind and will. His mind and will in the matter may be known chiefly either from the character of the documents, his frequent repetition of the same doctrine, or from his manner of speaking. So that's from Vatican II. A good example of this is there was a teaching by the Pope on birth control. So in in like conservative Catholicism, they're obviously against abortion, but also against birth control pills, things like that. That is not an infallible you know, dogma that, that you have to believe in order to go to heaven, but it is, um, if, if you're a faithful Roman Catholic, then you, know, you, you will obey what the Pope said as far as not taking birth control. Now, this doesn't, to me, this, it makes no sense because as we limit the range of infallible teaching from the Pope, but then we're also supposed to obey the Pope, like the Second Vatican Council says. It's like, okay, what is required here? What do, if if it's required, I need to believe it. If it's not required, then it can't be. There, there's no in between. It's either required to be a faithful Roman Catholic and be, you know, in the church, or it's not required. And and there's liberty to believe whatever you want. You can't just, you know, say, oh, you got to believe the Pope. But there's just a few things that you have to believe even extra. It there there should be. It's just what's required and what's not required to believe. So my point in all this is that the papal infallibility doctrine is just weak. It, it's, it's, it doesn't really help us a whole lot. The, the Pope is not a true you know, good shepherd. If I, James White says this in a debate, like if I am going to climb Everest and there's a guide that is supposedly an infallible guide, but then he can make errors all along the way and then somehow magically he just says, oh, I know I've made errors, but this now I'm getting a you know hyper beam from from my GPS, and now I am infallible, and I know exactly the way to go. And then you know, but 99.9 percent of the time he can he can be erroneous just like anybody else. It, it's it, it's it's a weak doctrine. It's just pointless. You could write a private letter to the Pope, uh, you know, with a question about some issue, how, how to interpret a passage of the Bible. The Pope could then write you a letter back explaining everything, explaining all the doctrines and, and all of that stuff. And then 40 years later or so, that letter could be discovered by the next Pope or another council of bishops or whatever. And that actually, his teaching could be called heresy and you wouldn't know it. I mean, you wrote a letter to the Pope. The Pope wrote you a letter back and yet he, the Pope could teach you heresy because, get this, it wasn't to the universal church and he wasn't teaching ex cathedra, so his letter to you may have errors all in it. That is not an, an infallible guide for Christ's church. And so if you wrote a letter to the Pope and he wrote you a letter back, how are you supposed to know you can, you can trust that letter 100%? You can trust the teachings of that letter. 
How, how are you supposed to know? Because get this, sola ecclesia, the church tells you what you have to believe. So that means 40 years later, if an ecumenical council decides or, or, the, or another pope decides that the previous pope, the pope that wrote your letter was an error, they can call him a heretic. And, and here you are, you've got the letter and you've believed this your whole life. Maybe you died believing a heresy because you wrote a private letter to the pope. So today I want to discuss a, a a similar, now I've exaggerated that a little bit, but a similar thing that happened in church history. Now I'm going to, there's, there's three, when we talk about papal infallibility, Protestants will typically use three major examples of where this breaks down in Roman Catholicism. A great sort of summary of these three is in a debate between James White and Tim Staples. I'll link it in the episode notes, but it's a debate on papal infallibility. Uh, I believe Tim Staples speaks first, and then after he speaks, James White has like a little 30-minute segment where he lays out all three of these. And then, of course, they they go back and forth, um, and they rebut each other in the debate. But it's an interesting one to listen to. So for, for a, a good summary of all three of those, see James White. Now, I'm going to take one of those and give you just a few more details and sort of slow it down, because if you just went and listened to that debate and you haven't research some of this conversation, you probably would be lost. So hopefully this sort of slows it down and and um, and helps you out. Now, if you have further questions, you can always email me, bearchristianity at gmail.com. You can message me on Instagram at the real bear martin. And today's episode is sponsored by The Charge. In case you were unaware, there is a major bill in Congress right now, and it will affect all of us in a great way. The Charge is a political action committee fighting for the livelihood of millions. Aren't you sick of purchasing a new electronic device only to find out it requires a different charger than anything else you've ever owned? Support The Charge Political Action Committee today. They are fighting in Washington to pass the Universal Charger Bill. This legislation would regulate companies to use one of seven universal chargers depending on the power needs of the battery. Many of the members in Congress have already invested in these companies at the ground level, so it looks like the bill will pass. Don't miss the chance to give away more of your hard-earned money. Support the Charge Political Action Committee. Now, Bear Christianity listeners will receive nothing for their contribution. The Charge Political Action Committee. Power up the people. This pact does not actually do anything to help you. They simply keep the money for themselves. Details may vary. Some restrictions may apply. All right, so Pope Honorius is the prime example that Protestants use against this idea of papal infallibility. Now, he was pope from 625 to 638. Now, I got I to gotta back up and I got to give you a little bit of historical information. So the Council of Chalcedon was, in, was held in 451. And they, the big decision out of that is that they, where they were investigating what the Bible said about Jesus Christ, and that council concluded that Christ had two natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature. Now, there were some that opposed the decision of that council, the Council of Chalcedon, and they were called the Anti-Chalcedonians. They believed that Christ had only one nature, and they were called Monophysites. Monophysites, mono meaning one. 
Now, many proponents of this anti-Chalcedonianism were in the East. And so the emperor, Emperor Heraclius, he wanted unity. And now, so now that's, that's uh, kind of that Council of Chalcedon happened in 451, and then these Monophysites that that sort of brewed, and and they that group grew in the east, and so back to Pope Honorius, so back to the 600s. Now, Emperor Heraclius he wanted unity in his empire. He didn't want all these Christological controversies because that was 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 causing separation in his government, and so Sergius from Constantinople, Sergius wrote a letter to Pope Honorius, and Sergius promoted, he, he, was, he was looking for like a common ground or sort of like a compromise. Sergius wrote this letter to Pope Honorius, and Sergius was advocating monothelitism. So monothelitism means that Christ had two natures, but only one will. Thelema is the word for will in in the Greek, and so mono, one, and thelema, or thelitism, that means one will. So Sergius was writing and and advocating for monothelitism, and Pope Honorius declared himself, in in a letter back, he declares himself a monothelite. Now, you don't have to worry about monophysites and monothelites and all that stuff. You don't have to worry about the the theological arguments. I'm not going to get into explaining any of that because the truth is that you know most people would would have no clue what I'm talking about. I had to look it up myself, and so this is not something that Christians are discussing all the time. So roughly 40 years after the papacy of Pope Honorius, the six ecumenical council met, and so they met from 680 and and into 681, and that this is where they condemned Honorius as a heretic. So think about this: if papal infallibility was actually the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, if if in the 600s all the you know all the bishops and leaders of the church knew that the pope was infallible, as Pastor Iternus says it was, then why would an ecumenical council publicly condemn a pope as a heretic? They are like stabbing themselves in the foot. My, I would argue that this idea, uh, this concept of papal infallibility, was non-existent. They, they, they just looked at it and said Pope Honorius was was teaching a heresy, and as an ecumenical council, we're gonna we're gonna condemn him as such. Now, Roman Catholic apologists will try to say that Pope Honorius did not teach a heresy. They'll say, you know, Carl Keating from Catholic Answers, he says, quote, actually, Honorius elected to teach nothing at all. So they'll say he was sort of silent on the matter. He didn't actually teach it. So what they're condemning him for is actually that he didn't really step out and boldly proclaim the truth. But it's impossible to be convicted of heresy if you keep your mouth shut. There, there's a difference in keeping quiet and teaching heresy. And what you're going to see here when I read some quotes from the Sixth Ecumenical Council is clearly they considered Honorius a heretic. They're not just blaming him for keeping his mouth shut. They are calling him a heretic. So at the in the 13th section uh, session of the Sixth Ecumenical Council, this is in 680 to 681, 
They read the letters which were exchanged between Sergius and Arnorius on this concept of monothelitism. And, and they say this, the Sixth Ecumenical Council. Therefore, we reject them completely and abhor them as hurtful to the soul. But also the names of these men must be thrust out of the church, namely that of Sergius. And then they go on to list lots of men who are associated with monothelitism. And then the quote continues. We punish them all with anathema. But along with them, this is our universal decision that there shall also be shut out from the church and anathematized the former Pope Honorius of old Rome because we found in his letter to Sergius that in everything he followed his view and confirmed his impious doctrine. So the letters of Honorius on the subject of monothelitism were then brought before the council and they were burned at the council because they were, quote, hurtful to the soul. Now, in the same sixth ecumenical council at a different session, the 16th session, it closed with this, all the bishops proclaiming anathema to the heretic Sergius, to the heretic Cyrus, to the heretic Honorius, to the heretic Pyrrhus. So that's the 16th session, and then the 18th session, the closing session of the 6th Ecumenical Council in 681, they say this, We have destroyed the effort of the heretics and slain them with anathema in accordance with the sentence spoken before in your holy letter, namely, Theodore of Ferran, Sergius Honorius. So it is very clear that the Sixth Ecumenical Council is condemning Honorius as a heretic for teaching monothelitism. Now, Pope Leo II, the, first off, Roman Catholics will say, well, the Sixth Ecumenical Council says that he's a heretic, but in order for that to be valid, it's got to be validated by the Pope. And so Pope Leo II is is going to um, essentially approve this council. But what, what Roman Catholic apologists will say is that Pope Leo II, he doesn't actually say that Honorius was a heretic. So they'll say the Pope has to approve it. And what the Pope says about the council, that's the only thing that that is binding, so to speak. Now, this was not the case at the time. In 680, there was no idea, the, the bishops at that council had no idea that the Pope had to affirm that that council in order for it to be valid. That uh, law in the Roman Catholic Church, it came about later, and that law was based on forged documents. So this is a, a weak argument by Roman Catholics that the, the Pope at that time had to somehow approve the, the council's decision. Now, even, even if the Pope has to approve it, listen to what Pope Leo II said. He says, Therefore we, and by our ministry, this reverend apostolic see, wholly and with full agreement, do consent to the definitions made by it, that is, the Sixth Ecumenical Council, and by the authority of blessed Peter do confirm them, even as we have received firmness from the Lord himself upon upon the firm rock, which is Christ. So he says that, that he wholly and with full agreement consents to the definitions made by this Sixth Ecumenical Council. Now, later on down, he's talking about Honorius. He says, and in like manner, we anathematize the inventors of the new error. That is, Theodore, Bishop of Ferran, Sergius, Pyrrhus, Paul and Peter, betrayers rather than leaders of the church of Constantinople, and also Honorius, who did not attempt to sanctify this apostolic church with the teaching of apostolic tradition, but by profane treachery permitted its purity to be polluted. So that's the judgment of Pope Leo II. He, with 
full agreement, accepts what the, the Sixth Ecumenical Council decided, and then he also calls um, uh, Pope Honorius a heretic. Now, so, so that's the Sixth Ecumenical Council, Pope Leo II uh, affirms that, and then also in the Seventh and Eighth Ecumenical Councils, these took place in 787 and 869, that there was a, they also affirmed the, that Honorius was a heretic. So three church councils there. Also, the oath that every pope took when he took the office of pope, the papal oath, from the 8th century until, uh, through the 11th century, all of them said this, that they smite, quote, smites with eternal anathema the originators of the new heresy, Sergius, and then etc., lots of other names, together with Honorius, because he assisted the base assertions of the heretics. Now, every pope for 300 years took the office of pope by condemning Honorius as teaching heresy. So I want you to think about the illustration I used earlier where I said if you wrote a, if you could write a private letter to the pope and then he responds back and then later on like 40 years later he is you're told that he that he what he wrote you was heresy. Well, that's essentially what is happening here. Sergius writes to Honorius Honorius writes back, says he is he affirms monothelitism. Then 40 years later, an ecumenical council condemns Honorius as teaching a heresy. So Roman Catholics will try to defend this argument in two ways. Um, first off, the if I'm going to list two debates on papal infallibility. One is by one I've mentioned earlier. Well, I've actually mentioned both of them already. It's uh, by James White versus Tim Staples. Now, Tim Staples will try to argue that Honorius, it was not actually a heresy, that we're misinterpreting what the, the council is saying, um, even though I've told you that the 6th, 7th, and 8th councils, I read you the quotes, they call it heresy. Also, the papal oath condemned Honorius as a heretic for 300 years. But he will say it's not a heresy, and he tries to, to uh, reinterpret the words of Pope Leo and the councils, and so that's that's how he tries to defend it. Now, Robert Sungenis, a different Roman Catholic apologist, he clearly, he'll I'm going to play you a clip here in a second of, that, of the cross-examination. He will clearly admit that Arnorius was teaching a heresy, but he will say, well, this was not ex cathedra. Arnorius was not teaching that. And so, so his view is that no matter what, if the you know when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, then that's when God will not allow the Pope to teach error. But again, I would submit to you that this this idea of papal infallibility is so weak. If we have this such a restricted view, the Pope can teach error, heresy, all this stuff, and then on a on you know when he only when he speaks ex cathedra, he's infallible. Now, when has the Pope exercised this authority? So it, this papal infallibility is supposed to be such a blessing for the Christian community. And when has he done this? Two times. Only two times. The Immaculate Conception and the Bodily Assumption. Both, are, both of these are dogmas about the, the Virgin Mary. Now, according to the Roman Catholic Church, you have to believe these two dogmas are, are, they are necessary for you to believe in order to have salvation. You are outside of the church if you do not believe these two dogmas. Here's here's what happens. These two, the, the Immaculate Conception and the Bodily Assumption of Mary, and I'm going to talk about those in later episodes, you have to believe those at j- the same way. They are on an equal level. They are part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to the Roman Catholic Church. They are on the same level as the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
They're on the same exact level. That's what papal infallibility will get you, an addition to the gospel. These dogmas about Mary were unknown in the church for centuries, but you must believe them in order to be saved. Now, this, this concept, you know, Robertson Genes, he says, well, you know, Honorius, he wasn't teaching ex cathedra, and so therefore, even though he's teaching heresy, it doesn't matter because he's not, he's not meeting all those criteria for papal infallibility. Well, I, the, the concept of ex cathedra was not, was not listed until 1870. Pope Honorius taught a heresy in six, you know, in this in the 600s. And so, how was a Roman Catholic supposed to know that he how how was he supposed to judge that? How was he supposed to know? You could you could die believing a heresy because they had no concept. Oh, you know, it's not like they could they could read the uh the words the letter of Honorius and say, "Oh, well, you know, it's just kind of everybody's opinion because obviously he's not teaching ex cathedra." See, this is what you have to do in Roman Catholicism. They define something in 1870, then you have to put your Roman Catholic filter on, look back in history, and then you can say, oh, that's no big deal. No big deal that the Pope, the vicar of Christ, was teaching a heresy because he wasn't speaking ex cathedra, and we know this is true because we have to fast forward 1,200 years, and oh, now we understand. It, that It just doesn't make sense with the claims of, of Pastor Iternus. This is the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, the clear doctrines of Holy Scripture as they have ever been understood by the church. So now I'm going to play you a, a quick clip, and this is a cross-examination. James White is asking questions to Robert Sungenis, and the debate is on papal infallibility. So what you're going to listen to here is the cross-examination. It's my favorite part of debates because one debater asks questions to the other debater, and they have to answer them. And so it's a really easy way for them to clarify each other's positions, and you can really pick apart the weaknesses in the other person's argument. And so listen to this. And where was that uh, definition of infallibility infallibly defined by a pope or by a council uh, prior to the days of Honorius? It wasn't. It doesn't have to be. Okay. Now, so Honorius was personally a heretic? Personally a heretic? What do you mean by personally? Did he teach monothelitism? Uh, he taught that Christ had one will. So is that a heretical view? That's a heretical view. So the Pope can be heretical, but it is your position that by some means he will be prevented from teaching officially his heresy. Right. So are all the popes actually uh, believers? Are all the popes? I don't know. Some could, some couldn't be. I don't know. So I'm it's not. possible for the vicar of Christ to be an unbeliever? Possible, yeah. So that's an interesting view. Now, in regards to Honorius' uh, condemnation by the Sixth Ecumenical Council, they did say, did they not, that Honorius taught the church this? Honorius taught the church this? Taught uh, monothelitism. They say he wrote a letter to Sergius that Christ had one will, and that uh, doctrine of one will was held by other people like uh, Cyrus and Pyrrhus and a few other people that they condemned with Honorius. Whether they said it was a teaching for the whole church or not, no, they didn't say that. Did they not say, quote, that uh, Satan had, quote, actively employed them in raising up for the whole church the stumbling blocks of one will and one operation? Yeah, but it doesn't say that he taught the whole church. It says that he was raised up, and, and if he wasn't taken out of the way, he could have taught that error, uh, but they don't use the word teach there. 
So uh, exactly how is it that uh, the phrase actively employed them in raising up for the whole church, what does that mean if it doesn't mean they taught individuals this belief? Because he didn't bind anybody to his teaching. So because he didn't use a specific term saying you are to be bound by this, uh, then uh, a person who read Honorius's letter in that day uh, would notice the lack of these words and therefore go, oh, this is, a, this, is, this is not really a binding teaching of the Bishop of Rome? That's what the Sixth Council said to us. I read that for you, and that's what Agatha said. That's what the Emperor said. That's what Leo II said. They said that Honorius did not have these criteria, and therefore they could condemn him. Well, that is what Sola Ecclesia will get you. Robertson Genis is a brilliant man. He's a really smart guy, but that's what it gets you. You have, you know, he goes all the way to say that the the vicar of Christ, the representative of Jesus Christ on earth to us, can be a does not even a Christian. It can be an an unbeliever. That is ridiculous. That is just ridiculous. In future episodes, this is just a little teaser. In future episodes, I'm going to play you another cross examination and a Q and A from the crowd on a debate on purgatory, and you will see another very intelligent man in in Roman Catholicism give some answers that will just blow your mind. Anyway, just a little teaser there. But our closing verse here is John 17, 17. This is Jesus praying to the Father the night of his betrayal. He says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth.